0: Good morning, welcome to the Religious Studies Project on a sunny Monday morning here in Edinburgh. I'm David Robertson. And I'm Christopher Carter. And we're brought to you, as always, with the assistance of the British Association for the Study of Religions. This week, I'm very pleased to bring you another interview with, uh, by Thomas Coleman. And this week, he's talking to Luke Galen. Um, the title is, Is Religion Special? A Critical Look at Religion, Wellbeing and Pro-Sociality. We'll have more to say after the interview, but for now... Tommy.
1: Thank you for joining us on the Religious Studies Project today. I'm Thomas Coleman and I'm here with psychologist Dr. Luke Galen. Dr. Galen is a professor of psychology at Grand Valley State University and a psychologist of religion and secularity, you might add. Uh, some of his recent work has focused on topics ranging from religious fundamentalism and research on secular groups. Uh, and especially the topic of today's podcast, which is a critical examination of the relationships between religion, health, well-being, and also prosociality. Dr. Galen, welcome to the Religious Studies Project.
2: Hi, thanks for having me.
1: I was hoping perhaps you could start by uh, discussing some of your current research interests and some of uh, the projects you're currently working on.
2: Yeah, one of them is, uh, as you said, the religious and secular pro-sociality, uh, talking about uh, the, you know, I, I did a psychological bulletin paper a couple of years ago that sort of reviewed the evidence for religious pro-sociality as being somehow different from secular versions. Um, and so that included some of the other uh, specific topics like um, experimental studies, priming studies of religiosity. In fact, I'm working on kind of one right now with my laboratory of using religious and secular priming to see what that elicits in terms of pro-social outcomes like uh, trust or cooperation. And then uh, I have some other interest in like the well-being area, which some would consider related to pro-sociality. So like uh, mental well-being and life satisfaction. Um, and so my approach has been on some of my empirical studies um, using comparisons of the traditional religious uh, groups or general population samples with specifically secular ones. So I have a had access to some groups that, like the Center for Inquiry groups or uh, the Texas Coalition of Reason, have given me some of their data. Uh, they've been good enough to share that with me, and so I can really compare then more uh, closely organized secular people to organized religious people on some of the variables that we just talked about.
1: Great. Um, look forward to hopefully hearing you integrate some of that work and uh, to answering some of today's questions. So. Um, you know, just for the listeners, this will be, uh, of course, a more critical podcast, and uh, we're hoping we're going to invite uh, Dr. Galen to start by kind of summarizing um, uh, the general consensus and um, the amongst the different researchers in the fields of, uh, first, the link between uh, religion, spirituality, and health. Um, Dr. Galen, if you could discuss kind of what the current consensus and thought is in the field. And, um... Then we'll move on to prosociality and see uh, see what holds and what doesn't.
2: Yeah, well, with, um, both with prosociality and with the mental health and mental well-being, I think the the general consensus for the past you know decades of research into into the back into the mid twentieth century was that uh, a lot of the studies were predicated on uh, that religion promotes pro-sociality in the form of like moral ethical behavior and then in the well-being field that it promotes uh, happiness and lower rates of depression and and mental illness and things Um, there was always sort of a debate going on within psychology and psychiatry uh, like maybe a legacy holdover from psychoanalysis or more Mm -hmm. secular psychologists that that religion or at least some forms of religion were Antithetical to mental health, so like Freud's view, obviously was that it was like a defense mechanism. Uh, and so there's been kind of a turf battle, I think, in, in history with mental well-being among the psychology and psychiatry community and some of the people who were saying, well, in our general population, it seems to promote happiness. Or, um, and so that's a lot of the research has reflected that, in that the studies have, depending on how you conceptualize or measure, how you operationalize mental well, mental health and mental well-being. Uh, there's been kind of mixed evidence but i think the general consensus in the psychology of religion field was that there's a positive pro-social relationship in those domains then when you start getting though people looking more at behavioral studies or experimental studies where they actually for people in like um the uh in in a uh non-self-report situation like participant like a a, uh the, the famous Good Samaritan Batson studies in the in the 70s and 80s, where you have bystander interventions, then you start to see what Batson's contention was, and other people were saying, well, wait a minute, you don't see a lot of the same outcomes that you did on the self-report measures that religious people weren't generally more helpful or um, uh, or moral or ethical, and so I think that that sort of led to this notion that, that I covered in my paper of a disjunction between results you get from self-reports which generally indicate that religious people report that they're happier they're more pro-social you know give to charity things and the results from more behavioral studies or studies that don't use uh that that are sort of not subject to self-report biases and there you see a more mixed picture that maybe some forms of religion are in fact related to pro-sociality maybe like Uh, quest religiosity, that dimension. But other forms like uh, fundamentalism or even like intrinsic religiosity have been found more to have a a mixed pattern that maybe some people would self-report that they're helpful or happy, um, but that when you use other measures, they don't find those same results.
1: So uh, I guess what I hear you saying is also very important in terms of how we understand religion and take that to be referred to in the world versus the lab so um, you know if I was have a conver- uh, having a conversation with a friend down the street who perhaps wasn't um, initiated into the academic uh, arena so to speak and I said yeah there's uh, the religion health and well-being link um, they might easily take that to mean um, you know religion in general is just is good for you however the things we're testing in the lab are Somewhat different, depending on um, how you conceive of religiosity. I think you mentioned. And um, what are how useful are these self-report measures for getting at religiosity and the links between prosociality or well-being?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think in social psychology in general, there's been a, always been a debate in that field. Maybe not with prosociality, but just the, what self-reports measure compared to other like implicit measures, too. In fact, I was just reading the other day in political psychology, they talk about the paradox of conservatism. Conservatives report that they're happier uh, than liberals do, but when you look at measures that are implicit measures, like how often somebody has a genuine smile, a Duchenne smile with their eyes crinkle, or uh, like their Twitter accounts, how often they post positive words or things like they say in their speeches, liberals are actually more positive in those domains. And that, that gets at this question of what is... Uh, what's the what is a better measure of happiness i'm using air quotes here but that is is it what somebody says or says they do or is it their actual moment to moment things you know and so that that there's other areas of psychology that have that same debate you probably heard of like the parenting literature that says parents report that their the kids make them happy that they're happiest when they're with the kids but when they do monitoring uh, with the you know like a beeper goes off and whatever they're doing at the moment they chart their mood that gets around self reports it looks like it's about the same as doing chores or something. They're not happiest when they're with their kids. Now you could say, well, they're lying or some sort of like crude interpretation, but probably a more accurate one would be is that it's a different thing that you measure when somebody reflects consciously on their experience. Hey, am I happy? Is my life meaningful? Am I a good person? That's, that's certainly valid for that thing, but it's probably not the same thing as in the moment-to-moment things, what are you likely to do? Or, you know, they do this in the prejudice research area, the difference between uh, self-reported prejudice versus things like the implicit association test or your nonverbal behavior often gives a different, a different indication. So that's not to say that self-reports are not valid. They're just uh, valid for some things and not for others,
1: um, I kind of understand that to mean if we ask you know, all the parents in the world, do you love your kids, everyone's going to say yes, but we shouldn't take that to mean that they don't yell at their kids or lose their temper or perhaps uh, you know, spank them or discipline them in you know, a shopping center at home. So it's, it's one thing to say, hey, I, I love my kids or um, profess adherence to a faith, and it's quite another thing to uh, how you might practice that in the day-to-day
2: world. Some of the the research that I talked about in that psych paper had to do with the research on self-enhancement, that religion seems to be related, at least traditional religiousness or intrinsic or fundamentalism, that it's related to a certain degree of self-presentation bias. One ought not to be a certain way. And so not that they're consciously saying that, but there might be some level of, well, since I am religious, I ought to be happier or I ought to be more pro-social. And so when you, as a researcher, come at them with questions – Religious people probably have a, somewhat more of a bias to give a presentation of themselves that, that they ought to be a certain way, and which colors the responses.
1: Um, how, uh, how widespread is the use of uh, self report data in the bulk of the religion, health, and well being studies? Um, you know, when average person opens up a newspaper and reads a popular article about the link, um, are these largely self report studies?
2: Sure. And, you know, it's easy to collect the data like church attendance. Um, You were mentioning uh, a second ago about like Harold Koenig's research on health. And and usually it's something like frequency of church attendance or membership in the denomination. So when I went through and looked at some of the studies that were like meta-analysis or some of the biggies that report general trends in the field, you know, the majority of them were uh, self-reports of... A religious denomination, so whatever Catholic or Protestant, uh, versus nuns or no religion reported, or it was how often do you go to church? Usually, you know, how many times per month or week, and at the bottom end, uh, none or don't go to church often. And that's that tends to be the standard in the field uh, because you know it's easy to collect that sort of data, and uh, and in fact, the conclusions that they base on that are valid for that uh, for that sort of spectrum. People who go to church frequently do have better health and better better mental well-being than people who don't go as frequently. Uh, But as you mentioned, some of my research tries to unpack that more in detail at the lower end of, you know, that doesn't mean that religiosity in general is related to those things. It just means that church attenders do
1: could uh, could you introduce the title of your um, review article, I believe, in site Bull um, that you were talking about previously? I don't think we ever introduced the title of that in case oh, any listeners are interested in reading more.
2: What was the title? Was that the Religious Pro-Sociality Hypothesis, a yes. critical review? I, b- it? I believe. I believe. I shouldn't have put <laughs> you on the spot like that. <laughs> no, I did a different version of that for Free Inquiry Magazine where I did sort of a more general public, less – uh, less scientifically detailed one that was called like a skeptical review of pro-sociality research And so I get the titles mixed up because they are similar projects
1: um, What do uh, you also reviewed in the article uh, many of the priming studies? What uh, what are the priming studies? What is priming? What are some ways priming is done to test some of these hypotheses and what are its advantages and limitations?
2: Sure. Well, I think um, as in cognitive psychology, the the, the whole point of priming would be to activate uh, either consciously or unconsciously, uh, activate concepts, semantic associations in a person's mind. So uh, these are the experiments that you hear about where they'll flash words on a screen or even through the context. uh, There's a lot of famous cognitive psychology studies where uh, like John Barge's research where you activate concepts of like old people and then you see if they walk more slowly down the hallway, that sort of thing. But in the religious pro-sociality area, uh, they often do things that where they activate a concept of religion, like the scrambled sentence tasks where you could embed religious words there or, or like I said, flash pictures on the screen that are religious versus control. And then you look at people's behavior in a laboratory-type context, uh, often the ones involve like economic games, because those are fairly standardized, like the trust game of how much you're willing to forward somebody else. Trusting that you'll get more money back, or like a prisoner's dilemma, or um, cheating studies where they look at whether you're willing to sort of fudge the results to get ahead. So obviously that the the laboratory tests are sort of done because they're presumed to have a little bit more tight controls than everyday life. You know, it gets around some of those self-report issues we just talked about.
1: Um, what, are, what are some of the limitations, though, in, in terms of the literature in, in priming? Is any of it, in your um, opinion, overstated when we're exploring the links of uh, priming pr- pro-sociality or religiosity and its actual relationship?
2: Yeah, well, Again, it's a question, I think, of the interpretation of the results. But most, you know, a lot of them correctly, I think, report that when you prime people with religious concepts— uh, that they tend to behave more pro-socially uh, so there's you know the, the, some classic studies like by noran Zainan and Sharif where they prime uh, really flash religious words or scramble sentences and then the people are more generous with their offers with other people or they're more honest and if the results would just be interpreted as religious concepts can activate pro-sociality or some religious concepts that you know I would that would be a fairly you know uh, a um, Not an elaborate result, maybe, but that would be accurate. But my problem with some of that is, one, uh, it depends on the type of religious concept being primed. So some of the more sophisticated studies in the past, let's say half dozen years, have varied types of religious words. So maybe ones that have a positive valence like, uh, you know, Jesus or the Holy Spirit, as opposed to maybe wrathful or authoritarian words. I think there's a a group in Texas that a Rowitz group that does things like, have authoritarian God-type words as well as benevolent God-type words. And there you find, as you might imagine, uh, some differences with pro-social outcomes. The, the wrathful words sometimes make people more—I think some they've had some findings with things like prejudice. Uh, and my other problem with that is that often a lot of the studies didn't include, or now it's more common, a secular control of words. That is, in addition to the Bible or God or ones that might Book." And this is related to the evolutionary psych field, like supernatural monitoring. The circular words will control for that by having civic sort of monitoring, like the police, courts, judge, you know, or, or even the ones that that are conceptually similar, like you know, nice or you know, kindness or something like that. And when you do those controls, I think most of the studies that I'm familiar with show that there really isn't a specific religious pro-social effect; that it's equivalent to conditions in which you would have Secular. So, like I think that Nuran Zayn Sharif study included those civic words like court and judge, and they found that that also made people equally generous and less likely to cheat. And so, again, my, my question, my, my, my point there is not that there isn't a religious pro social effect, but it depends on one what type of religious concept is being primed into, uh, it doesn't seem to be unique or sweet, generous to religious things. It seems to be more of a semantic concept in general of, you know, be nice to people or just as you would imagine.
1: Yeah, that uh, certainly brings me to the next question. Um, You know, is there anything inherently specific or special Uh, Is there any special religious variable operating here, or can lots of these findings be explained through just general psychological mechanisms um, that, you know, being with others and believing good things is good?
2: Yeah, I mean, my position is, at least in the fields of, like, pro-sociality and mental well-being and things like that, the answer would be no, that when you include proper controls— uh, there doesn't seem to be any specific benefit. I mean, we were talking the other day, about, uh, just a second ago, about, the, um, about well-being and a lot of the health research, which, again, I don't have a problem with some of these things like, you know, more frequent church attendance is related to better health and well-being, because it is. Um, but it seems to be that that is an effect of the social contacts and being in bed, the type of person that's embedded in a social group. It can be religious, but it can also be a secular group. So some of my studies find, in fact, that that well-being is among people who are equivalent to church members, uh, committed secular people, can be atheists or secular humanists, who are strong believers, who are also embedded in a secular group where they do things, where they get together with like-minded people and receive social support, that there isn't any specific benefit of being religious as a worldview. It's just equivalent to strong believers in a supportive environment, which sounds kind of boring, you know, because it's like, well, where's, where's the God stuff that's supposed to make you happy? Now, I suppose some people have made a case that there are some things that are like uh, optimism or a sense of existential purpose in life that religious concepts might provide that secular ones don't. And I'm, I'm actually uh, agnostic, I guess you'd call it on that question Uh, Maybe it is the case that thinking that when you die, you're going to, you know, go to heaven or that God, the creator of the universe is your best buddy that you could talk to. There might be some benefits of that. Uh, Although, again, I can think of some variations of secular equivalence, like this is a debate within the spirituality research area about whether what's called spirituality, when you look at some of the questionnaires or items they ask about, are really uh, I could see secular versions of those important topic. Yeah. Meaningfulness in your life, a sense of purpose. Those are also, also some. The surveys classify those as being spiritual. Uh, you know, my life has meaning and purpose. Uh, I feel at one with the universe sometimes. Well, I know a lot of atheists who report those experiences, so it's difficult for me to see why that should be called spiritual.
1: I, I've also seen um, you know some scales. You know, I enjoy long walks. You know, outside or with nature, and I'm thinking okay, um, you know, people who go on long walks outside generally have better health. Um, and I, my understanding is lots of the some of the scales um, that measure spirituality often overlap with mental health constructs. I was wondering if you could um, discuss some of those measurement concerns. And are you measuring spirituality, or are you already measuring
2: well-being? Yeah, I didn't, I didn't come up with that idea myself, but I did cover it in my Psycho article because it, there seems to be uh, that's sort of pervasive, I think, in a lot of the well being field is that they continue to use those sort of measures of what I was taught in graduate school as called criterion contamination, that the predictor contains content or items of what it is you're trying to predict it with. You know, so there, that's not only a problem in the of religion field. I think there's been some criticisms of like, and uh, I'm a clinical psychologist, so like predicting using measures of, um, of things like uh, alcohol abuse and alcoholism, and then it's also contained in antisocial personality that you have alcohol and drug use. Well, when you look at, oh, the overlap between antisocial personality and alcohol and drug use is high, that's because some of the items are the same content that they're asking about. So in this context, in the psychic religion field, it is that, like we mentioned, a lot of the spirituality-type questionnaires or even some of the religious ones are not measures only of your belief in a supernatural power, which... Would be my definition of you know what's what's unique about religion, but it contains things in general like we said, meaningfulness, purpose. Or they would ask the items this way: um, I feel close to God. So in my review, I, I talked about some of the research on like marital happiness. Some of the measures in those studies were not measures of do you believe in God or not or, or how much. It was I feel close to God or uh, you know things like that. Well, who are the people who say? We know that people who'd say yes to those items are believers who feel close to God. But who are the peoples who disagree with those items? Yes, the atheists and the agnostics would, but also probably religious believers who maybe are shaky or, even, or might even feel like, you know, have spiritual struggles or abandoned by God or things like that, conflicts with God. That's not non-belief, that's a believer who has difficulties, or you could imagine that maybe a depressed believer might say, I feel not close to God. Well, sure enough, when you look at those types of measures, it, it, they do predict positive outcomes like marital happiness or you know lower depression, but that's often due to the item content not only asking about just belief or not, it asks strength of conviction or some of the more positive, fuzzy, warm, fuzzy things like, you know, I feel close to people or things like that. And so when you unpack it that way, a lot of the studies don't really, I would contend they don't ask the proper question of is it belief in god or supernatural concepts that's doing it as opposed to you know like we said measures that are contaminated with things that would be positive outcome or variables for anybody even a happy atheist might say like he said i go on walks i feel supported i have friends that's not spirituality and so it's sort of unfair to say oh now uh, in my opinion a lot of the research kind of almost approaches a, sh- a bait and switch mm-hmm. Where, the, where if you go back in the methods, they'll probably say things like, you know, this is a measure that includes religious-type supernatural concepts and this content. But then often the summary, the title will be religion and spirituality is makes you happy. And, and that's my problem with that research is that's not what they typically find.
1: And uh, as I also understand, many of the comparison groups are simply uh, higher religious believers with low so, um, and many times the studies are actually only comparing believers against believers, um, you know whether they're low or high. But this is often um, taken as though they're making a comparison with not religious, or perhaps even important, uh, more important as you know non-believers, you know, an atheist. So many of the studies, um, uh, perhaps you could give us an example of uh, a study where they were just you know broke groups up into low believers and believers
2: yeah that's usually the majority of studies and uh, particularly in the United States because as you as the listeners probably know you know even now that um, despite this talk of secularization the number of people who are not religious probably you would say let's say atheists and agnostics you're talking about maybe seven eight percent maybe add on some some people who are uh, who would say none or not religious that have some vague spiritual things maybe ten percent let's call it maybe 15. Well, if you do a general population survey, I, for one thing, for sample size reasons or statistical reasons, a lot of people just lump those. But they would say, you know, the people with a religious denomination versus the nuns, or uh, or even using the, uh, some of the scales like the intrinsic religiosity scale is a popular one. It measures importance of belief. But the, at the low end, it's usually things like, you know, uh, religion is not important to me would be one thing and it's sort of again somebody who's a strong non-believer maybe an atheist or a secular is pretty much for analytical purposes lumped in with weak believers or unsure believers fence sitters things like that and so uh if you want like examples of these studies like often that you'll see this with things like uh church attendance and things like happiness the general social survey has items like how often do you go to church bottom end is none you know, but as we know from some of the surveys that separate that out, the nuns or the undecideds, uh, most of those are religious people. That is, most of those say, I believe in God, but I'm not a particular religion, or I don't go to church often. And only about maybe, let's say, a third uh, of them are what we would call atheists and agnostics. So just like we were saying before, really what the studies measure uh, is strong belief or strong or frequent church attendance with uh, believers who are not strong or who don't go to church and obviously uh those are different things strongly we know that strong atheists and agnostics like firm non-believers differ from the unaffiliated in general or maybe the, the nominally religious so a lot of things like education uh, even demographics like you know their the sex ratio they're much more strongly male the atheists and agnostics but um uh, but also with things like um Uh, you know, having all the benefits of having a strong conviction, like we were saying before, it's not unique to religious people. Strong atheists, uh, in some of my studies, found a curvilinear effect at the bottom end, as well as the top end, that it was the people who were the believers, but not particularly strong, who were the ones that had the lowest mental health.
1: Um, Shifting back here to prosociality, I was wondering if you could discuss, um, in terms of the religious prosociality findings, Pro-social to whom? Um, under what contexts um, it does a lot of this pro-sociality actually extend to? Uh, is it likely to extend to everyone in the entire world or, you know, just uh, the inhabitants of local village or perhaps church group?
2: Yeah, that's a debate that sort of uh, crosses a lot of different fields, as you know, like with the, the evolutionary psych field, but uh, with things like uh, with a uh, Big Gods book or some of the um, stuff even in ath- uh, cross-cultural and anthropological work about non-Western religions, they get into this notion too of, of pro-sociality to whom. Uh, and so one of the things that I contended in my in the psychological bulletin paper was that when you start to look at in some of the studies of pro-sociality about who the beneficiary is, the, who the target is of pro-sociality, then you start having some problems with the just a general religion makes you a better person. Uh, now, some people would say as long as you're nice uh, to subjects in the experiment that you're partnered with or as long as you give money to charity in real life in the naturalistic studies, who cares who they are? You're just a nice person. But this dates all the way back to some of, you know, like Batson's work in the uh, in the 70s and 80s where when, you, uh, when the target of the person, uh, some of his studies found that when they were what he called a value violator, somebody who was uh, maybe a... Uh, A a gay person, for example, or somebody who a religious person might consider an out-group member, then you don't see a positive pro-social effect. In fact, sometimes you see religion makes people more discriminatory towards out-group members than a a secular person. would. And so um, I would contend uh, when you look at the controlled studies where the partner or the target, whoever receives the pro-social stuff, the, the charity, if you want to talk about charity research, that there is a relationship that religious people are nicer to people who they perceive as being in fellow in-group members, either presumed or specifically labeled as this person is a fellow whatever, uh, Christian or a fellow white person or something like that. But once the further the target of the niceness gets away from an in-group member, the, re- the effect falls apart and even in some cases reverses. So I think in anthropology they have concepts of like this, your, um, your radius of trust – how, uh, starting with a narrow band of, like, kin, family, friends, and then it starts to go out from there, maybe neighbors, community members, uh, and then, obviously, like, fellow religious group members. What religion does, I would say, looking at the results, um, is that it makes a person nice or pro-social, but it also makes them have a narrower circle of trust. Or there might be a selection effect there, too, that religious people might select into environments, let's say, like, a, a rural town, or something like that, where they're surrounded by people who are like them. And so when you ask them questions like, you know, are you nice to people in your day-to-day life? Do you give money to the charities? Often who they're referring to, whether uh, consciously or unconsciously, is people like them from a narrower range of trust, as opposed to let's say at the opposite extreme, like a very mixed cosmopolitan environment like in you know New York or something like that, where you're different racial, ethnic group, people who you don't even know, true strangers. There you don't see, and, I, and, and in fact, some evidence would say that the more religious you are, the more uh, parochial you are with your niceness. That is, the more discriminatory. Who is this person getting the money? Mm-hmm. It, you know, is it a charity that if somebody that I know, somebody in the charity, it makes them more picky about it. And I think even some of the big surveys, like um, uh, listeners might have heard of Putnam's Robert Putnam's work on like um, American Grace. He did this whole book of surveys. What he found was that, uh, like we were saying, that the the religious people are nicer and more generous, but it was more limited to what he called parochial uh, pro-sociality, people who they knew, and they were more picky about people who were different from them. And so I would contend that all the research tends to, uh, to reflect that interpretation, that it does make uh, religiosity is associated with kindness and niceness, but more discriminatoriness to in-group members.
1: Um, kind of bringing the interview to a close here, I was wondering if uh, you could leave us with two closing points. Uh, one, what does the overall literature, uh, literature in the area of you know, health and well-being and also pro-sociality? Is there anything we can say definitively um, about religion in these links? And second, uh, conversely, um, what is perhaps overstated or always misinterpreted in terms of these links?
2: Um, well, I think as far as the, the first question about what it is that you can say definitively, I'm probably on the end of the spectrum that would say very little. If by that you mean something that is unique to religion, so like we were talking about before, sui generis effect, where it's something that you wouldn't find any secular equivalent, I would argue that you know the default seems to me that there isn't very much that's unique to it, unless. You want to talk about religion as kind of a proxy variable for other things. That is, in the, like in the moral research area, you know, Jonathan Haidt's work talks about religion as a binding effect. That is, whatever religion is to you uh, depends. If you are referring to it's something that binds people together and makes them get along, at least in a group uh, context. If that's your definition of religion, then then I would be willing to say well, yes, there are some things probably with. The atheists and agnostics don't have they're like they like more like herding cats. You've probably heard of all the stereotypes where you know you get all these people squabbling about uh, you know amongst the heathen uh, uh, that you wouldn't find you find less of that amongst religious people because they have a transcendent maybe a binding factor. They think that God is commanding them to get along and, and pull together in a tight for better or for worse to to make a tight groupiness. Now if you want to so if your definition of if your question is Religion promotes that sort of thing uniquely, I'd be willing to soften up a bit and say that maybe there are some aspects of group-binding definitions of religion that might be unique. But just like I've been talking um, about, once you expand it to, is that something that could not be achieved through other means, or it's something that doesn't have a secular equivalent, uh, then I would say that no, there really isn't anything that's that's unique about religious-type concepts.
1: Yeah. Um, Dr. Galen, where can uh, the RSP listeners go to find out more about your research? Um, do you have a website, faculty, or, or academia page that you might be able to suggest?
2: Yeah, I have a, a small, uh, brief web page at my Grand Valley State University website. Uh, otherwise, they, you know, if you Google "scholar," you can see some of my greatest hits there. A few of that there are uh, come up. Um, but then the listeners could always email me. I also have a account at ResearchGate where I've posted some of the PDFs of the various articles up on, on that. It looks like a lot of researchers are heading there to get you know copies of work from other researchers. That's always a good resource, too. Uh,
1: Dr. Luke Galen, thank you for joining us on the Religious Studies Project
2: today. Thank you for having me.
3: Thanks very much for another fantastic interview, Tommy. Um, I think, as we said before, Pretty much our most prolific interviewer, certainly this year, if not um, last year and maybe the year before. Um, attentive listeners who listen to our witterings at the end of the podcast might have been expecting Julie Exline um, this week. Um, we, we decided to mix the schedule up a bit just to keep you on your toes. Um, we're saving Julie Exline for next week, which is going to be our, uh, our final podcast. Yeah. These things happen when you're working to a weekly schedule, exactly. unfortunately. Um, our final podcast for the, uh, before, before the summer break. It's not our final podcast ever just to get out there. Right, um, it could end up being, we don't know that. We're not planning that to be the case. Yeah, yeah, there could be a sort of disaster in for wiping out the entire RSP team. Um, one never knows. Um, but yeah, we said we might, uh, talk a little bit about the actual interview that we've just listened to there. Um, uh,
0: well, we were just musing. It's it's nice to see um, in this interview. It's nice that we, we get the critical approach that, that we uh, hold quite important, close to our hearts. To our hearts. With the um, Tommy's kind of psychological uh, background, um, we see the two of them coming together here, which is really interesting. Actually, because for me, one of the problems of psychology of religion. And not just psychology of religion, but sociology of religion. Yeah. Um, and I've uh, is that the, there's often an uncritical use of, um, you know, what Russell McCutcheon would call folk categories. Hmm. The things like they'll they'll do a study of different types of really religion, but they'll never question really what they what the, the categories mean and where they've come from. Yeah, so and essentially they're just doing a study that reinforces their same you know, the already existent paradigm.
3: And do you believe in a personal God? Do you believe in a higher power? Are you not sure? Do you not believe? And that's kind of, you know, well like the the first two peop- first two categories are people who are religious. <laughs> yes, exactly. And I've I've seen the same thing happening in in
0: psych- psychological studies of conspiracy theories, for instance, mm-hmm. where they'll go does belief in conspiracy theories make you mean that you are irrational or paranoid? So we've listed 20 conspiracy theories in order of their craziness. So, you know, there's no discussion of the fact that the category is, is, is constructed and represents certain power issues. Yeah. So uh, great to see that come back, and let's hope that we can continue to do that in the future.
3: Yeah, and fantastic to see it applied to... Um sort of idea of health and well-being which um, you know you, you even find um, let's say within the NHS here in the UK you'll find the, the idea of a, you know, a holistic treatment of the patient and the, the spiritual well-being and these terms are, are thrown around quite a lot in, in healthcare, care as if that just it's unequivocally a good thing for mm. patients to be dealing with whatever this apparent spiritual thing is but, and I um, often hear um, people saying things like you
0: know I don't have a problem with different religions but I do think it's just important that people believe something that they have some sort of moral code you know um, <laughs> these kind of ideas that whether or not there's you know whatever it is it's still
3: fundamentally good for us um, so yeah really good to to hear that kind of um, broken down and and questions being raised about you know whether mental wholeness or what that might be, secular, religious primers. Um, Yeah, so really good to see it all unpacked. Um, So next week's um, Alexus Davidis um, speaking to Julie Exling on a kind of similar theme, um, the kind of struggles. Um, So I think that's another um, psychological the kind of struggles that people have uh, with religion, brought about by religion. All these uses of the term are in quotation marks, Mm -hmm. of course. Mm -hmm. Um, Struggles that might be described as religious struggles. And why would we then describe them as religious struggles and not as just struggles? What does the addition of that word do? Mm -hmm. Uh, So, looking forward to that. (laughs) Interesting to go to that one
0: after this week's one, anyway, and the discussion that we've just had. Yeah. But we'll see. Um, so, as always, uh, follow us on Facebook, on Google, on Twitter. Um, you can subscribe to us on iTunes. If you do, please leave us a rating. We'd be grateful. Please do consider using our amazon.com.co.uk.ca links. Um, it's a way that you can help the project out considerably without any expense to yourself. Um, but until next week, thanks,
3: thanks for, for listening. listening.